0: Welcome to StoryWise. This is the podcast designed to give you the story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, inspire, and motivate you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy committed to guiding your vision through one-on-one consult. To help you get to the next step in your career. Today my guest is the brilliant author Stephen Pressfield. Stephen has written a number of top-selling novels including The War of Art, uh, Winning, the Creative, Winning the Inner Creative Battle, The Legend of Bagger Vance, Tides of War, Virtues of War, The Last of the Amazon, Gates of Fire and the Afghan campaign. Did I get them all?
1: You missed only the last one which is Killing Rommel that just came out about uh nine months ago.
0: Oh great. Yeah. Why don't we start oh, with World that? War II story. Tell- yeah. <laughs> war. Okay. We have to start with this. War is a huge, huge theme and in your books. What is the story behind that?
1: That's a very good question, Jen. It's, I think I just um, i see life as a battle, and actually it kind of comes out of the writing life and the facing of the blank page. And the fact that in order to succeed as a writer, in other words, somebody who must self-motivate, self-discipline, self-validate, one has to acquire what I would call the virtues of war, the virtues of a warrior, and that those virtues include, you know, a certain courage to face it, patience, long-sufferingness, the ability to be miserable, and uh, Many other of those kind of the virtues that you associate with soldiers in a foxhole who are just a lot of times I think about the writing life day to day as I'm an infantryman who's just trying to crawl forward another 50 feet through the hedgerows with bullets zinging over my head and that that's all we can try to do each day, gain a little ground, gain a little ground. And finally, we look up one day and we finished whatever it is that we were working on.
0: I love, I love that, and I think that really resonates in your book, *The Art of War*, which I promoted on my The *War of Art*. *War of Art*. What I love about it is the intimacy and the wisdom um, that it conveys to the writer and the struggle of the writer. And it it fascinated me really as a concept. Certainly, knowing of *The Art of War*, what inspired this book.
1: Um, the War of Art, really, it's not a novel. It's a very short book mm-hmm. that's really uh, – I originally intended it only for writers. But um, my uh, publisher, Sean Coyne, who was my original editor, um, he came up with the title the War, The War of Art. He thought it would, was appropriate for painters, dancers, musicians, filmmakers, that kind of thing. And then since it's come out, I found that it so seems to be appropriate across all spheres and particularly entrepreneurs. But the way it kind of came about, Jen, was that, um, you know, as a I'll give you the long version of this story. You know, when you're a working writer, as you well know, your friends come up to you, usually after a few drinks or about one o'clock in the morning. And everybody says, you know, I've got a book in me or I've been working on a screenplay or you should hear the story of my uncle's life, blah, blah, blah. They all have, you know, a book that they want to do. So I've sat up many nights with my friends talking for two or three hours trying to psych them up and telling them the concepts that finally came out in The War of Art. And finally, after I had enough of this, I was just bored stiff with this, and I didn't want to spend another night telling another person, you know, you can do it, you can do it. So I thought I'm going to put it down in a book. I'm going to put it on pages, and we'll see what happens. So The War of Art came out of me in about two months, and— Hardly changed a word. It was just ready to come. So that's – it really is kind of the distillation of 25, 30 years of trench warfare, internal writer discipline facing the dragon and what I've learned as just, you know, another guy slogging through the trenches.
0: Do you know it it feels like that? It feels like something that authentically came through you. And it feels like an intimate conversation. I have to say, like, I, in reading it, you hit so many themes where I was, he knows me. (laughs) I felt this. I know what this experience is. I, some of the, I love your You Inc., and the idea of for a writer to incorporate himself has certain tax and financial advantages. But what I love about it, is the metaphor. I like the idea of being myself, Inc. That way I can wear two hats. I can hire myself and fire myself. I love that concept because there is something so empowering, I think, as an entrepreneur. As you said, this book has hit such a broad range that, is, that feels amazing about having your name and, and incorporating another part of the book that i love was how you so openly discuss self-doubt and say self-doubt can be an ally this is because it serves as an indicator of aspiration it reflects love love of something we dream of doing and desire desire to do it if you find yourself asking yourself and your friends am i really a writer am i really an artist chances are you are the counterfeit innovator is wildly self-confident the real one is scared to death. I love that. That spoke to me. Like uh, re- working with writers in a consultancy and recognizing how self doubt is a very natural part of the writing process. To see such a renowned author who has such an amazing body of work behind you, to come in contact with that so intimately, I thought was beautiful. You did a, a really great job on that. What has the response been to the book?
1: Um, I get tons of emails and tweets yes. and uh, all that sort of stuff. In fact, I, as, as we were talking about a little earlier, Jen, I just started a blog right. on, on another subject, a political subject, And people have been tweeting me so much about the War of Art that I had to start what I call Writing Wednesdays, Mm -hmm. and each Wednesday I do a little blog that's uh, like another War of Art chapter because people – I thought there were a few people out there who would relate to this, but I was amazed at how many – there are. And ha- everybody suffers from self doubt. Everybody's terrified. Everybody asks the same questions. I've got a wife and kids. I've got a mortgage. How am I ever going to do my dream? Or I have three stories that I know I want to do. How do I know which one I, I should follow? Or I- I'm hearing these weird voices in my head that are telling me <laughs> to kill myself, jump off the, a building. What should I do about it? that kind of thing? So uh, it does seem that there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of people not just psych your clients or anything, who are all dreaming of being uh, musicians and dancers and entrepreneurs and philanthropists and um, all have to face that same, those same dragons of self-doubt, procrastination, and all the other uh, forms of self-sabotage that we apply to ourselves.
0: Now, for our listeners, how can they um, tune in to your, your Wednesdays?
1: Uh, it's just, uh, my blog, which is stephenpressfield.com. Just Google Stephen Pressfield and it'll come right up.
0: Great. And it's Wednesdays at what time?
1: Uh, it's all, it's actually on all Wednesday and all Thursday. Oh, that's great. And then you can, oh, it's archived. You can just scroll down to it and all of them are there. Oh, that's so, fantastic.
0: Yeah. I love that. Now, looking at your body of work, what would you say is your favorite and your least favorite creative experience?
1: Uh, you mean you mean which book yes is? it's funny that uh I really love all of them um i've in 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 the movie business when I've written things for hire and and some of those I don't particularly like but any uh, i'm I've been lucky in that all of, they're all they're all like your children, you know. One yes. of them may be a little shorter than the other one, and uh, one may have a club foot or something like that. But you still you still love them all. So I do love them all, and I'm and I'm I'm. Ha- they're like little friends of mine that I can uh, oh, I like sit that. in the corner, you know? And I'm glad that uh, they're there.
0: Now you touched on your movie experience. Tell me about that
1: um i had about a 10-year kind of b or c probably i'm (laughs) flattering myself when i say b probably c level career that's been resurrected a little bit because of my because of the novels in fact i just just finished working and i'm in the process of working with uh, randall wallace who wrote braveheart on doing a screenplay for uh, jerry bruckheimer films for uh, killing rommel so we're sort of which is my latest book which is kind of in the in the In the uh, middle of its process right now, but I had about a ten-year career until my hair started turning gray, and you know what happens when your hair turns gray in a (laughs) Tinseltown. So uh, it was, um, you know, a good experience that I never really uh, broke through to, uh, you know, an A-level or anything like that, but paid the rent for a long time and learned a lot until I finally started writing novels.
0: And it's never too late. You look, and really, what is an A-level anyway? But you, you, I agree with you that. It it is an interesting thing. What is the concept of your latest book? If you, can you share that?
1: Sure. So, you mean yeah. killing Rommel? Yeah. It's um, the, it's set in uh, North Africa in World War II. Rommel, uh, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel was the Desert Fox, the great German, legendary German commander, true life commander, and it's about sort of like a Dirty Dozen type of story about a raid, a behind the lines raid, um, by a British commando team called the Long Range Desert Group where they went deep 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 into the desert and tried to get around behind the, the German rear and kill Rommel and thus turn the tide in uh, in the war and a lot everything kind of goes wrong and it's it's so it's that kind of a story.
0: Oh that sounds great. And Randall Wallace, I love Braveheart. So that, that good. Yeah, he's oh, a terrific good. writer was, and a wonderful guy. Yeah, that is wonderful. I've learned a lot from him. Yeah, I was going to say, now, when your novels go into screenplays, what is that process? Are you initially attached to that? Is that something, what has your experience been with that?
1: Well, I've been fired, like I say, almost uh, almost uh, off every project I've ever been on, and uh the, the honesty the, 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 of
0: the writer's <laughs> life. We love that.
1: And uh, in fact, the, in The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was the first uh, book of mine that was sold as a movie, um, the phone rang just after, it started, after Robert Redford had been assigned to it as a director. And it was uh, Jake Eberts, the producer, telling me that uh, I was being let go. And I thanked him. Because it was the first time that anyone had ever had the guts to actually tell me that I was fired, instead of me having to find out about it by reading it in Variety or by my agent lying to me, too. That, uh, But, yeah, so uh, I think... Um, like they say, when you've been when as a writer in Hollywood, when you're being praised by the producer, the next thing that it's going to happen is you're going to be fired.
0: And that kind of is the rite of passage in this town. I mean, I, I I do I like for people to share those experience in the sense of recognizing they're they're just obstacles. Yeah, they're that's obstacles fact, that you get over.
1: I can see from I can actually understand it from the point of view of the director, or particularly of the director. If I were director, I would fire the original writer too. I'd at least talk to him. But you know, uh, once the director comes on board, it's the movie becomes his. It's his vision. He's going to hire a writer that's going to give him his vision, and he doesn't want some the 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 uh, legitimate the original writer who has a legitimate claim on the story hanging around saying, "Well, you know, I saw it a little differently than that." So he. He wants to get rid of him, and I can understand it. I actually optioned a book a few years ago of uh, a writer who I really respected, who was actually in his nineties and in in a nursing home. And uh, the first thing I did was fire the hell out of him. It just <laughs> tore his book apart. So I could I could tell why people why people do that. I can see it.
0: Well, I think in the creative process too. Certainly, when you write a book and you have the experience, I've worked with a number of novelists in my business, and. And it is a very big difference, a novel and a screenplay. Oh, yeah, tremendous difference. Showing and telling, very, very big difference between the two mediums. And I do find people, when, when it's your own, you do struggle with the idea of adapting it to the screenplay format and letting go of so much language that I'm sure you've grown That's so That's really true, Jen. You know? I think a lot
1: of times it, it is better to bring in fresh talent, mm-hmm. fresh legs, unless you're so good at that yourself that you can divorce your own self from, you know, divorce your screenwriting self from your novelist self, and very few people can do that.
0: Along that line, I would love to ask you about one of the themes in the book, the war of art, and that is resistance, which actually is probably the thrust of the book. Yes. Uh, and, And I love the part that says there's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. It's not the writing part that's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. What keeps us from sitting down to write is resistance. So this had to have been the momentum for you to write this book.
1: Well, that was sort of, in fact, I in my file that I used to write this book, I titled it Resistance. And um, that with a capital R. And I think that your writer, clients, and listeners, uh, this is a really helpful concept. This is what really kind of helped me is that I've always felt, and I, and I never read this anyplace else, That a work that I'm about to start on, the blank page, seems to radiate this negative force pushing at me and pushing me away from it. And I've kind of, in my mind, I call that resistance with a capital R. And it's the writer's job, in my opinion, before anything else, simply to overcome resistance. And what is resistance? It's procrastination. It's all forms of self-sabotage. It's all the excuses we make up. It's all the reasons that we give ourselves. We're not good enough. We're too old or too young. It's all been done before. I can go down the list. Everybody that's listening knows that list by heart. And those. And here's the trick to me. This is, Jen, what I kind of realize is when you believe those voices in your head and you give them validity, then they have power over you. But one, And you say to yourself, well, maybe I am too old. Maybe I am too young. Maybe I don't have a PhD. Maybe I'm too stupid. Maybe it's already been done. But maybe that's true. But once you recognize that these voices are a resistance, they are just bullshit that your negative self is putting out, then you just let them go right out of your mind. You just say, well, they're there. But I'm just going to overcome them. And I don't care I don't care what these voices say. It's sort of like in the Iliad when Odysseus has himself lashed to the mast and they're going to go sailing past the sirens. And the sirens are these beautiful women who are going to try to lure him onto the rocks, lure his ship onto the rocks. That's the voices of resistance that we hear in our head. So what Odysseus did was he had his crewmen plug up their ears with wax and their orders were just keep rowing no matter what he said. And of course, as he was hearing the voices of the sirens, he was crying out to his men, pull over, let's pull in. It looks beautiful over there. In other words, he was yielding to resistance, but his men had their ears plugged and they just kept right on rowing. So that is what resistance is to me. And I think once, Once I grasped that concept after about seven years of wandering in the wilderness and I sort of realized that these voices in my head were just bullshit, then I was able to just settle down, break through, and just just do my work. And that was the breakthrough for me.
0: I I think that's fantastic. And I think it's so true. I mean, I, I can say we all can certainly relate with the idea of negative thinking. And it almost feels like the war between the ego and your spirit it's like your spirit is the calm part of yourself that hears the negative thoughts and is there telling you but sometimes your spirit gets overpowered by your ego and your ego and i think the beauty of the inner negative thoughts is the recognition that those are ours and as long as we're not sharing those, which I think some writers do make the mistake of, they share everything. Like if they're feeling doubt and insecurity, it all comes out. And I think the page is an incredible outlet for that. I have to be honest, because there's not a person on this planet that doesn't have those same negative thoughts, self-doubts and fears uh, on every level. So I I. I'm actually grateful for people like you who are able to get in touch with that and and put that on the page because I think it puts everybody else to rest.
1: Well, what I'm trying to do just is, is just to help out my fellow, you know, sufferers and and let people know that uh, uh, they're not alone when they feel this. And I can tell you from all the emails and tweets that I've gotten, that we are not alone. Everybody's feeling the exact same thing. Now, I'm a believer, Jen, that that this gets a little mystical, but I do believe that a book or a screenplay or a dance or anything creative already exists on some other dimension before we, in this material dimension, are challenged to bring it forth. You know, I think that like Beethoven, that da 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 that was already there in the ether. And he was just the one who just, who heard it and then had enough faith in it to actually bring it forth in this material dimension. So the forces that are, there are, neg- just as there are these kind of angels and muses, in my opinion, that are inspiring us and bringing us ideas, there is the dark side of that, the shadow side of that, and that is resistance, the negative forces that are trying to to um, prevent those things from being brought forth by us. So it's our job to listen to our higher muses and not to these negative forces but that is so easy to say and so hard to do
0: It's no it's very true and I think I I one thing I noticed about you is your spirituality and on that note um I read that you believe in past lives I do Yes tell me about that
1: <laughs> 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 I love it, that uh, I
0: do as well so uh,
1: I, I'm not sure how that relates to uh, to well, the with, writing when world, I look but uh, at
0: spirituality. And I look at like their um, the idea of past lives and spirituality, and how you believe things come through you. I know that the author of the book Conversations with God said exactly what you said, as far as he couldn't take. He said, "I can't really take credit for the books because it came through me." which I I think is an interesting thing. And I think as authors, I think that very often is the case. But I'm sure you can say in your body of work, uh, well, and actually on the line of, of the past lives, I don't mean to skip past that, have you utilized that in your writing? Has that been something you've explored?
1: Not overtly in any way. I just sort of believe that it's true. Um, based on, I'm not even sure what, just instinct or something like that. Like, it's sort of odd that uh, I've written five books that were set in ancient Greece, and I seem to be tremendously at home in that world. But yet ancient Rome leaves me cold. I have no interest in that at all. So the, the only way I can sort of figure that out is I must have been alive in the one and not alive in the other. Oh, and now, whether that's true or not, uh, I have no idea. But uh, you know, there's an interesting thing. Have you seen the 18-minute um, piece by Elizabeth Gilbert that's at the TED yes, conference? I have. Boy, it's is fantastic. that a great one that uh, for your yes. listeners to log on to. Yes. Um, what is
0: that? What is that? I forget where that address is.
1: Uh, I think. am sure if if they you, do. If Elizabeth Gilbert. You simply Gilbert. Google yep. Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And at the, I don't know what they call it, T E D or TED, whatever it is, technology, yes, you're right. something or other. It is
0: TED. It's yes.
1: TED. So just if you just Google Elizabeth Gilbert at TED, and what she's talking about is where does inspiration come from, and she and she's making the point that it really isn't coming out of us, but coming through mm-hmm. us, which is exactly what I believe. And if you if you go back to the ancient world, the um, Homer writing the Odyssey or the Iliad or any of those uh, great artists from there. The first, they start each piece with an invocation of the muse mm-hmm. where they ask the goddess, the goddess who inspires us, or actually the nine sisters goddesses, muse, tell this story through me. And uh, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. The Greeks addressed the mysteries by putting a personal face on it. They they named, you know, if there was a thing called war, they had a god of war. If there was right. a thing called love, they had a goddess of love. So inspiration, they put a face on it and they gave the nine sisters, the muses, the daughters of Zeus and memory. Very interesting. And they were the ones who were inspire, who would inspire artists. So the artist asks the muse to speak through him, invokes the muse. And I def- I do that every day myself before I sit down to work and uh oh that's uh, it, right it, i it remember helps.
0: elizabeth going into that where she'll say are you coming today where are, <laughs> right. are you i'm waiting right i now, think uh, yeah i think now is your character going into Telemon, a character that you that recurs in your novels does that is there a link of tell me about telemon
1: i'm not so sure about that jen but Telemon is a Uh, I don't know if 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 someone hasn't read my books, they don't know. But there, it's this one character who's usually a minor character, who kind of appears in. in, I put him in every every book, and he's he's a mercenary uh, soldier who has a very hard boiled attitude towards things. He really demystifies everything, and that, in a way, is my theory about writing. In fact, uh, let me let me address like we what we've been talking about about. Um, the muse inspiring you can get a little airy fairy, but there's another side to it, and and uh, in in my sort of cosmology, that has that is much more of a blue collar lunch pail hard hat attitude, and that really is the way I go about working. And in fact, people have asked me, well, okay, the concept of resistance, self sabotage, how do you overcome that? What's your way? And of course, there are a million ways of doing it, but work, what works for me, and this is in the war of art. Is a concept that I call turning pro, and I think that when we see ourselves as amateurs, as weekend warriors, and so forth, then we'll yield to resistance. If we, if uh, you know, we have to take the kids to some place, or we have uh, our bosses bugging us for this and that, the you other, know, we'll give in to that. But if we think of ourselves as pros. As professionals, then we figure I can carve out at least an hour a day to do my stuff, you know. And I'm not going to give in if I have a cold. I'm not going to give in if I feel a little down, or if I'm had, you know, if I've been arrested, or you know, I've been waterboarded. Whatever. It's, nothing's going to stop us. Just like a Kobe Bryant in the in a in a season with the Lakers, his knee is killing him. His back is out. You know, he just got a concussion. Nothing stops him. He's a pro. He suits up and he plays. And I find that when you take that no-nonsense attitude, which Telemann sort of embodies, then the muse will come in through the back door. She likes to see us sitting there, you know, with our butt in the chair, sweating blood. And then then the the flow, the mystery can happen. But it doesn't happen by being airy-fairy about it, in my view. It happens by being hardcore, Disciplined, professional, cold-blooded, working every day, and just keeping at it, at it, at it, at it.
0: I like that. I think that's great. You worded that beautifully. I, I, you know, I think there is a fascination with how we move past resistance and how we move through it. And I, I did find it fascinating that you had a recurring character because it kind of felt to me like. Does that symbolize a part of self that is in every single one of your pieces in a way it kind of does, you know? It does.
1: He's a sort of a – he always is a mentor to characters in the story, and he's kind of mysterious. He's sort of like Yoda or something like that right? who, who comes in and usually offers a few pithy uh, remarks that kind of keep them on the track. But his, his attitude is he's a, he's a mercenary, so he fights for pay. He doesn't fight for a cause or for a flag. He doesn't believe in any of that fancy schmancy stuff. He's really a kind of a, almost a Zen samurai type of, of person who fights for the fight itself. And, and that's how I feel about writing and about art, that uh, I, I never try to look forward to, is this going to be a success? Is this in sync with the times? Is this going to sell to uh, Paramount? I just kind of ask myself, what do I want to do? What a, what a, what is interesting to me, and I just do that, and uh, and that's kind of a Telemann-esque attitude. It's um, it's fighting the fight for the fight itself, for writing the work for the work itself, not for any object that we think the the work is going to bring us, and paradoxically. That seems to work best in the commercial world. Don't ask me why. But when we sort of crazily follow our, our vision that we think nobody else could possibly care about, to our amazement, or at least it's, it's worked for me, people do respond to it against all odds. Whereas in my experience, when I try to second-guess the audience or the marketplace, that's when I fall flat on my face.
0: Um, I think that is a great note for us to take a break. We are here with Stephen Pressfield, author of The War of Art.
2: You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.JenCrisantiConsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision.
0: We are back with Stephen Pressfield, author of The War of Art. I would like to ask you about your personal routine and discipline with writing.
1: Uh, I'm a morning person. So when things are going well for me, I get up really early, go to the gym or do some kind of exercise and then, uh, you know, sit down and, and get to work. However, this is and this will, I think will be interesting for your people or your, your listeners is it almost never works out that way. Almost always it takes me forever to get started, and uh, a lot of times I'll get up at 530 in the morning and it's 2 o'clock by the time I finally actually sit down because I've had to go to the post office or blah, 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 taxes, you name it. So I, I, I must confess that that uh, I, the, the wheels wobble off the, off the track a lot of time, but I always do it. One way or another.
0: How many so, hours would you say you write a day?
1: Four is the max. When I hit four, uh, I'm, I always stop when I start making mistakes, when I start making typos. Because uh, I remember reading something that John Steinbeck said that, uh, that I always uh, stuck with me. He said, to try to push on too far when you're tired is, in his phrase, the falsest kind of economy. And I think that's really true. I like to—Hemingway said you should leave a little water in the well for the next day or always stop when you know what the next sentence is going to be. So I, I'm definitely a believer in that because the most important thing is momentum, keeping going, not letting resistance break the flow. So uh, I, I, I don't stop. I don't push it to the limit. I always stop when I still have a little gas in the tank.
0: I think that's great advice. Um... As far as other advice for writers, if you, if a new uh, writer approached you right now and said, Stephen, what can you tell me uh, about going into a career as an author? What advice would you offer?
1: I would say it's a very good... You know, I haven't actually thought about that, Jen. Of all the things I haven't really thought about, I'm going to tell you what I really think here. I think that uh, if you... Um, If you look at Tiger Woods, have you ever watched Tiger Woods play golf? You know, at the pinnacle, a guy at the pinnacle of his profession or Michael Jordan play basketball I think if any of us could beam ourselves into Tiger Woods body or Michael Jordan's body, we would have a heart attack within three seconds they'd carry us out on a slab because they are operating at a level so far beyond what the rest of us are capable of. So to sort of go from the sublime to the ridiculous here, I would my advice to anybody embarking on any kind of creative career is. However hard you think it is, it's 10 times harder than that. And however tough you think you have to be mentally, you got to be 10 times tougher than that. So make up your mind at the start. If you're in it, you're in it for the duration. It's going to be hell and you're going to have to go through hell. And nobody's going to help you, your own wife, your own kids. You're all alone Um, the bullets are going to be flying. Your own self is going to try to sabotage you as hard as it possibly can. So, uh, uh, I would just stress how mentally tough you have to be and how much you have to want it and how, how, whether you, you know, some people can baby themselves and help themselves through. That's fine. Other people can be really hard on themselves, but, to really succeed over the long haul, you have got to be mentally tough beyond anything you think of at the start.
0: Now, I think that's very, very true, and I think that is that is great advice. Are you? I, I find with writers that they are either the type who I have, and I think it's fascinating, found writers who hate the writing process but love looking at the work after it's completed. Are you one who prefers being in the process or one who prefers looking at it after? That's
1: another really good question, Jenna. To me, it's just like diving into a cold pool. I love the process, but it's that, you know, once you're in a cold pool and you've swum a length or two, then you're fine. Uh, But it's the jumping in while you're standing on the edge, shivering, you go, holy cow, how am I going to make myself do it? So I do love it. I really, it's a refuge for me. Um, I feel um, when I'm working, I feel I'm sure like Michael Jordan feels when he's playing basketball or anybody that's a professional. But it's the getting started that's the hard. That's the real mental toughness. That's where the mental toughness comes in. Once I think you're, you know, another analogy that I use, and I use this in The War of Art, is if you think about a hunter back in the caveman days. You wake up in the morning, you're in this cave, you know, you're warm under, you're next to your old lady, you're warm under the fur or something, but you know you're starving, you're hungry, the kids have got to be fed, so you've got to go out and get something. So you take off, it's cold, it's wet, it's dark, you're slogging up through the bushes, the brambles are, you know, they're snakes and everything and you just keep slogging and slogging and slogging and then all of a sudden a little, little rabbit pops out there and you can nail that sucker and bring him home and put him in the pot. And that to me is kind of the process of of getting into the flow. What takes the mental toughness is the climbing the hill and keeping going and keeping going. Once you've done that and you've gotten in the groove, magically you sort of slip into the flow and suddenly Something good comes out on the page. And you go, wow, where did that come from? But the mental toughness is required. There's a, uh, There was a, an Olympic gold medalist. Can I keep on rambling here, gents? Okay. No,
0: no, no. This is this is amazing insight. There
1: was a, an Olympic gold medalist in swimming a few years ago named John Naber. This was back uh, after uh, Mark Spitz but before uh, Phelps. And um, they asked him once, what is the difference between a great – swimmer and a good swimmer and he said swimming is a kind of a sport where very soon once you hit the water you enter the pain zone and he said what makes a champion over an also ran is the champion can go a little deeper into the pain zone and he can stay there a little longer and there's a lot to that I think and the 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 fun part does come once the pain passes but there it's the pain that makes people give it up or stop so again mental toughness to to break through that that barrier and do it day after day after day i would say to somebody that was starting out you know gird your loins and don't and, and follow your dream and don't let anybody or anything stop you
0: i think that's great and i mean as far as uh The getting started, as you say, one thing I definitely want to share because I loved your honesty in the bio as far as after graduating from Duke, it was 17 years before you were paid as a writer. So your getting started period, which included a number of very interesting jobs. Um Tell me, tell me a little bit about that and like what kept you going?
1: Uh, that's, that's a, that's a good question. I guess just, uh, madness, you know, just insanity. I uh, just, I just couldn't, I uh, had no choice. Um, but I did, I, I wrote forever for like 17 years before I got the first paycheck, you know, writing at night and I would work at a job, save money, quit, go someplace for a year, write a book, bring it back to New York. It would get rejected. I'd work again, save my money. I did that three different times. Nothing ever happened. Um, and I and many times my friends would just sort of uh, look at me like uh, you know God bless you Steve you know but we're, you're crazy you got to be crazy to do this, and I think I was in some way. But any any entrepreneur who believes in a vision, any artist, any dancer, anybody who has a an idea of a philanthropy, it's it's a real common story to just keep banging your head against the wall and banging your head against the wall. The great thing about writing and a lot of arts is that you can do it as you get older. It's not like being an athlete where you, you know, you got to be 27 years old or something. So it, you know, in a way it was good for me because I think I would have been insufferable if I had had any success at a young, at a young age, but it took forever for me.
0: But I'm a believer and I, you know, I am definitely a believer that, The more life you live, the more you have to reflect on. So I do definitely agree with you. There's no substitute for
1: actually living.
0: Thinking about all the characters that you've explored in your book, I have been fascinated by the idea of Alexander the Great, uh, who appeared in two of your books, The Virtues of War and The Afghan Campaign. I'm, I'm very curious about what it was um to write about Alexander the Great what you learned about yourself within that character and also what you learned about Alexander the Great with the research done for those Well
1: books. let me ask you Jen why what is it about Alexander the Great that that uh, intrigues you
0: I think the whole history of the story and the exploration that's been done on television and the the Probably the combativeness and the um, the rebellion and the I, I, I'm just I'm, I'm very intrigued on a psychological level uh-huh. about and, and then to know that you did two books on it in different perspectives to have an idea of what it was to be in that character for for two books.
1: Well, he, Alexander the Great is one of the great fascinating characters of history. When you think about it, you think about it, a lot of uh, generals have conquered things, you know, but mostly they were like these horrible, you know, Genghis Khan or maybe Genghis Khan was a nice guy. I don't know. But but Alexander somehow is an appeal, appealing, and he was so young. He was beautiful, and he died so young. So, And he died in that – after – getting almost to the ends of the earth and then his men refused to go any farther and he had to kind of give up on that dream. So to me he was a fascinating, well, it's always been a fascinating character. And actually the way Virtues of War came to me, which uh, was I just heard in my head the, the two opening sentences. And the two opening sentences were, I have always been a soldier, I have known no other life. And I just, that came to me, I just thought, ah, that's the first two sentences of a book. But I didn't know who the character was. In fact, I thought it might have been Telamon. In fact, I sort of started with that. And then I kind of lived with that for a month or two, and finally I realized, ah, this is Alexander the Great. And I thought, well, this is going to take some balls to write a book in the voice of one of this incredible person. But I'm a believer, I, as I say, I believe in the muse, and I believe that you can write more intelligent characters than you are and more interesting characters than you are, and you can write characters who know things that you don't know. So I I, I thought it would be a real challenge to do it, so uh, so I plunged in. But what was fascinating to me, or it's funny, 100 writers, 100 different writers will write 100 different Alexander the Great stories if they're given that, that topic, right? But what was fascinating to me or what the, my Alexander was I felt that he had in him a daemon, which is the, a Greek word, D-A-I-M-O-N, which the uh, Romans translated as genius. And actually, Elizabeth Gilbert, we were talking about earlier, talks about this on her, in her TED speech. Oh, interesting. And the, the concept that the Greeks had for a daemon was that it was this force that was sort of twinned with us at birth. And it was us, but it wasn't us. It was something beyond human. And I felt that this was the force that drove Alexander. He was really, when you think about ambition and aspiration, there can't have been too many people who had more than he did. and But yet to surrender to this daemon, which is a kind of a an inhuman drive to conquer Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, makes you inhuman in the end. And so, what was fascinating to me was the duel between him himself and this force that was inside of him, and that he was aware of that, because he was a really intelligent guy. You know, taught by Aristotle. So that was what kind of gripped me about about that story, and uh, that challenge.
0: I love that. I think that I think the complexity, the psychological complexity of being in that character had to have been amazing. I think that's incredible. Um, Now, looking at your career, as far as all the characters you've explored and the topics in your novels and your screenplays, um, if you were to go back and do anything differently, what would you do?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, in a way, I don't think you can do anything differently. I think that the, the mistakes and the detours and the dead ends all kind of are part of, part of the process And uh, in some way. You know, I, I couldn't say, oh, I would have gone out to Hollywood from New York sooner. That wouldn't have worked. I would have just crashed and burned. I couldn't have said to myself, oh, I should have started writing, you know, X sort of subjects because I wasn't ready to do it. So I think, um, in a way, I just would have had to let it be exactly the way it was um, with all of the mistakes and all of the, you know, the years that they're not really wasted because you're learning as as you're doing it. But it's a uh, it's school of hard knocks and it takes a long time.
0: Do you look at yourself as others look at you? Do you – can you look at your talent and feel – pride and feel like i am a great writer
1: um no (laughs) i really feel like uh um not to sound too mystical but i I feel like i'm a servant of the muse and i I put myself at at her disposal and each each um you know, I can look at things that I've done and I say, oh, that's pretty good, you know. And usually when I do think that, I think, wow, who wrote that, you know. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's but, so honest. Yeah,
1: I'm not too I, – I, and I, Elizabeth Gilbert says this too, that, she, yeah. that over-identifying with the, the work or with the, uh, the ability to do the work I think is a, is a real death trap. You know, the, Greeks, the Greek gods, the one crime that they hated more than anything else was pride hubris. So I think the writer has to really stay away from that. So, um, And and it seems to me that every new project, and I've read a lot of other writers, Philip Roth for one, who you would think is like a master if there ever was one, that every new project, he feels like he's just starting out fresh. And it's a new problem, the problem of the book, that he's got a lick. And he doesn't know if he can do it. And I think most artists and writers, actors that take a role, directors that start on a movie. You don't know. Can you lick it? The you don't. You don't until know until you do it. So you just have to do the best you can, and um, so that's that's how I look at and it.
0: And accept what is. Accept what, what is. I, yeah. I, I love. I, I love. Sometimes
1: that. you just can't do it. I have a I have a friend actually. He died tragically. His name is Bob Bidner. He was a terrific artist back in Brooklyn, and I remember when I first visited his studio, he had this big studio and he had paintings all over the place that were, and then he took me, and they all were great, I loved him, you know, and then he took me in the back and there was like these, these canvases sort of staggered, stacked against the wall, and he said, these are my clinkers, and a a clinkers from the old days of when, he had to tell me this, I didn't even know this, when people heated their houses with coal, you would get a whole scuttleful of coal or shuttle, whatever they called it, and most of the lumps of coal would burn great. But there were always one or two that were like these clinkers, and they just wouldn't burn. So that was what he felt about these paintings. And he showed them to me, and I could see that they were clinkers. You know, something just went wrong. It just They just didn't catch fire. So we've got a lot of those in us, too, but each one, I think, helps in the overall
0: for our last question, I would love to ask you what is something that makes you feel the most fulfilled.
1: Ah, that's another good question. Uh I th- I think that at the end of a day, if I've done my best and given it, you know, all I can, um then I I feel uh, at peace. I feel like I've earned the right to keep breathing on, on the earth until the next morning when resistance rears its ugly head again and I have to slay that dragon again. Um, I, it, it is fulfilling to, to finish a work that you're proud of. You know, um, a lot of the movies that I've done or been involved with or tried to write and, and failed, uh, I'm not proud of. Uh, some of them I am, but but um i am proud of all, of all the books so i think to um to to have a vision that really comes from your heart and to follow it all the way through do it the best you can even though you may look at it and you go oh boy i would have done it differently there's there is a real fulfillment to that and i think that is the payoff of of the writer's life it isn't all for naught it's it's painful but, and uh you know works that you do as an artist you know, it's all human vanity, you know, how long is anything going to last? But it does It does feel good. It is fulfilling to know that you've given it the best you can, done it, you've given it your best shot, and and been true to what you tried to do.
0: I think that's very well said. And Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me here. Incredible. You are more than welcome. It was my pleasure. I am a huge fan, and you can, again, go to Stephen's website for any information on his writing blog or books coming out and uh, former books. I am out with Stephen Pressfield, author of The War of Art. This is Jen Grisanti of Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. and StoryWise Podcast. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. StoryWise is produced by Joel Metzger and Hot House Bruiser Productions.